So we have another guest on this episode. So we have Thanasis Gublas, who's a lecturer at the University of Exeter, and one of his special uh, interests is on special advisors. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. And I'm, as I say, very excited about this one. So first of all, just want to say a big uh, welcome, Thanasis. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Harry, for the invitation. Really happy that I am here with you today. It'd be great if you could just tell us a bit about your general research interests, your background, and maybe a bit kind of leaning into how you got interested in this particular topic of special advisors. Right. So as you mentioned, I am a lecturer at the University of Exeter. I've been there for five years. I did politics and public policy and global governance. And uh, with respect to my research, I study elites within the so-called executive triangle meaning politicians, advisors, and senior civil servants. And I am interested in the study of uh, uh, political advisors to executive politicians uh, and what they do in the backstage, especially how do they help or not help shape uh, public policy. Now, why am I interested in this topic? I'm interested in this topic because in the past, I have been an advisor myself, and I have been a political advisor differently than you would expect in the UK system. I was an advisor in Greece, but I was an advisor as a seconded civil servant in uh, ministerial offices during the crisis. Um, so it was always of interest to me to be able to understand what is it that an advisor does? What is it that the civil servant does? And what is it that the ministers do in this executive triangle? And whether they are actually suited for the job. Uh, so when I decided to have a career change and uh, not be a practitioner anymore, uh, I decided that I needed to resolve various questions that I had in my mind. And uh, therefore, one of my research interests became the study of these relations to this executive triangle. To start off with, I thought we'd go with the sort of um, simple on the one hand, but probably quite difficult on the other hand question of what is a special advisor? This is a kind of a simple yet difficult question to answer in the sense that the term advisor is a very general kind of a term that lacks a well-defined meaning. Uh, and uh, it lacks a well-defined meaning for various reasons. First, many advisors to politicians, uh, they have an unofficial status. Uh, so, for instance, politicians can be advised by friends, by spouses, by people that they know and they like and they value their thinking. Uh, many advisors are not employed by ministers officially. They work outside the so-called executive advisory and support office. Uh, they are ad hoc consultants. Maybe they can be political appointees with executive powers that they have been appointed maybe by the minister, but not inside the office. Uh, they can be in the political parties. They can be societal actors totally outside uh, the executive tribe. Another problem is that the job description of uh, political advisors is very minimally defined. And it's very minimally defined when we compare to job descriptions of civil servants and even of politicians themselves. And finally, the actual things that advisors do in ministerial offices and head of government offices uh, have a great variety. Yeah, they have a great variety of roles. It is not just to advise, to, that is, they, they, they do not just provide judgment on policy, communication, and political issues, but they help all kinds of issues that are very important. There's a matter of fact, this multiplicity and variability of roles and the different strategies across countries and across time uh, has created, have created a plethora of terms. Uh, we, uh, at some point with um, some of my PhD students, we conducted the systematic literature review and we found that, that just in the countries of the Westminster tradition, there are at least 19 different terms used. Uh, to refer to advisors. For instance, in the UK, we're talking about special advisors, but special advisors is a kind of a term that is not really used in other countries. Other countries use uh, 
know, for instance, Canada uses the term exempt staff uh, to mean that they are exempt from the usual provisions about civil servants. They're also referred to as ministerial advisors, political advisors, and so on and so forth. But this was a kind of a very uh, big introduction to say that uh, depending on who, who you ask, they have a different opinion about what is the object of research and of study. But what I would like to say here is like for today, I would like to say, I would like to define shortly who am I will be talking about. So I will be talking about political staffers who are personally appointed as temporary civil uh, servants. This means that they are exempt from meritocratic recruitment and their tenure is linked to the individual who hires them. Who hires them? A minister or a head of government, prime minister, to work in their offices. Uh, and of course, what is it that they do there? They offer partisan advice, so they are exempt from impartiality requirements, and that makes them very different than civil servants. So they are by default partisan. And of course, except for this provision of partisan advice, they also assist with policy, political communication, and politics functions within this so-called executive advisory and support office, which in the UK has a specific shape. What we need to keep in mind that in other countries, for instance, in my country, Greece has a totally different shape. In the UK, we're talking about these kinds of neutral Wilsonian uh, hybrid, actually hybrid offices. So we have a private office, which is a neutral, and we have the SPADs, who are partisan. In systems like in Greece, France, Italy, we have the cabinet. I'm interested in that kind of ad hoc uh, element that you that you mentioned uh, to these kind of agents within government. What are some of the strengths and weaknesses that commonly, most commonly, sort of pointed out to with that kind of ad hocness um, that they're not necessarily have a contract in the same way? They might not have the same rules of governance applied to them, all of that. What, what are some of the common strengths and weaknesses that people point? I think the biggest benefit is loyalty, mm. first of all. And the second is the ability to politically control the policy process, which means to steer the policy process towards a partisan direction, which in the end is what politicians want. They have been elected uh, to implement a specific program and to be able to, to do this, they need to uh, overcome uh, very often certain obstacles. Uh, that, and these are obstacles that they don't just find in parliament and from opposing political parties, but very often they find them within bureaucracy itself. So these actors there, they're loyal and they help politically control this process. And this is the biggest benefit for politicians. And then with the relationship with ministers, what is that relationship? You touched on it a little bit, that they can have that personal loyalty to a minister. So I'm interested in a bit more about what their relationship to ministers looks like um, and maybe how it differs from, from other civil servants. But also thinking about, does that vary from, from country to country? And is the UK... Uh, model of special advisors and their relationships and ministers, is that common among uh, different jurisdictions or is that more unusual? Well, I wouldn't say that the, that the United Kingdom is, is unusual. I think it is a, it is a typical system uh, where small offices dominate and mm. where each minister has only two to three special advisors. The exception being the prime minister who has 40, 50, 60, it depends. So in the UK, what we see is we see a presidentialization, cabinetization of the prime ministerial office, whereas the ministerial office remains largely uh, within the so-called Westminster tradition. Um, now, loyalty and trust, these are big, these are resources in the system. So the advisors who are very important in the systems, uh, they usually uh, need to gain the trust. They have the loyalty, but they need also gain the trust of the minister once, or of the prime minister. And once they have this, they can exchange this uh, for influence. 
Now, in systems, one, one difference is that, is that um, in, in systems where you have many advisors, like in the United States, for instance, or in Greece, France, Australia, which is a cabinetized system to a certain uh, you get what I have called in one of my uh, book chapters in the past, circles of trust. You've seen the movies about circles of trust. So in the big offices, you have the inner core, you have a sort of outer core and the very outer core of people. Now, these kinds of circles of trust, uh, you also find them in the UK. You find them in the prime minister's office, which is an office with many staffers. But when a minister on, only has two spads um, there, there uh, these special advisors are usually carefully selected uh, to both uh, be loyal and trusted. What, what's the special advisor's relationship to the permanent civil service or, or, or non-relationship? Well, it depends on how you see it. There are different things... Uh, that we study with respect to the relationship there, yeah. Um, uh, one issue, one accusation, let's say, which is uh, very, uh, we find it very often also in the media, is that advisors politicize the uh, civil service and they crowd out expertise by bringing politics into the process. So there is a big question about uh, cooperation and rivalry in the executive triangle and the way these actors cooperate or uh, uh, whether these actors clash uh, between each other. And this cooperation, cooperation and rivalry issue exists between advisors and civil servants, civil servants and politicians, uh, advisors and politicians, and advisors themselves. Um, and uh, um, many surveys uh, have shown that in certain systems, in certain times, cooperation is quite high. So there is not too many problems. But in other eras, even within the same system, uh, rivalry runs high. So we cannot by default say that um, the presence of advisors brings cooperation or brings rivalry. Uh, it depends on always on the circumstance. Um, and of course, this is a kind of a, of a topic of research that has been going on uh, for a lot of time. And of course, what we know is we know the way in which advisors uh, can cause rivalry and they can, the way in they can cause tension. And the, one of the ways that they can cause tension is uh, by pushing uh, a neutral civil service and to politicize. And this can happen via various ways. In some systems, political advisors get involved in civil service appointments. This is called formal politicization. This never happens in the UK, almost never, of course. But in Greece, it happens, for instance. It happens in the United States. In the United Kingdom, it's not, it's not so common. Another way in which um, they can create rivalry is via gatekeeping actions. They do not allow the advice from civil servants to reach uh, the minister, or they block civil servants from seeing the minister. In the literature, this process has been called as administrative procedural politicization. That is the jargon. Uh, another way in which they can cause friction is by actually changing a piece of advice that they receive. Um, so, for instance, you are a civil servant, you write something, it goes up the hierarchy, goes to the spot, the spot doesn't like it, they change it. Yeah. This is called substantive administrative politicization. Uh, it's again a jargony term, but it just reflects uh, this kind of, of a problem. And the last way in which um, advisors um, can create a rivalry and tension is via pushing the neutral civil service to functionally politicize. This means by pushing them to think about tactical and electoral advice all the time and actually making them enter into a competition on this kind of advice. So suddenly where the 
you have a civil service of mutual civil servants offering fear, fearless and frank advice to the minister, suddenly they start becoming strategic advisors, offering also tactical electoral advice to the minister. Um, so these are the different avenues in which advisors can create tension. Uh, but of course, the empirical study of this phenomenon, of formal, of their role in formal politicization, administrative politicization, and functional politicization, as we say, uh, the empirical investigation shows us that, shows differences, depending on country, depending on system, depending on type of office, depending on time. So we cannot make sweeping uh, generalizations about this. Uh, and very often, and this is a kind of a surprising uh, result, in some systems, uh, advisors actually protect from certain kinds of politicization. So in the UK, the understanding in the literature is that uh, the president of SPADS insulates civil servants from having to produce this kind of political strategic advice that ministers want. So they do it for them. Otherwise, ministers would have still needed this advice. If these actors didn't exist, they would have needed to get this advice from them. And in many systems, uh, ministers do get this advice also from the top echelons of the civil service. And although in the UK this sounds as something bizarre, uh, in some systems, this is not bizarre at all. This is actually something that uh, civil, top civil servants do. And uh, you might think, okay, maybe this is something that they do in Greece. But no, they do it also in other countries. do this uh, in Germany. They do it in some Nordic countries. They do it in the United States. So going into kind of the, the history uh, angle of, of this now. So could you give a bit of a sort of potted history of, of, of special advisors, particularly in, in the UK, sort of how they came into being? Um, you know, to what extent have, has something like this always existed? So as with uh, the history of political advisors in any system, we usually have three stages. We have the emergence of advisors, we have the institutionalization of advisors, and the expansion of advisors. And uh, there's a fourth stage also in some systems, which is stabilization. The special advisors that we know in the UK started in 1964. Uh, La uh, Labour Prime Minister Harold Wilson was in power at the time, and he was the first one to appoint five special advisors in the form of temporary civil servants of political party association. And these people were appointed to the, to the cabinet office and the treasury. So this was a very kind of a small team of people, but they were the first ones that had this role. Yeah, temporary civil servants of political party association. This was the first wave. Uh, the next government, uh, the conservative government, kept the system. They didn't do changes. But when Harold Wilson came back to power in 1974, he expanded the system and institutionalized. So this was the second wave. And what, did, and what does this mean? This means that, uh, first of all, with his famous state, first of all, when he came, he came to power in 74, uh, he basically allowed ministers to appoint special advisors, not just the treasury and the cabinet office. Second, in 1975, he made a very interesting statement where he... Um, went through all the basic reasons why politicians, ministers, executive politicians need these actors. And in 1978, there was the first order council that contained the legal reference to special advice. Now, the third wave from the 70s, we had to go to the 90s, end of the 90s, 1997, Tony Blair, for the third wave of expansion of these offices. And essentially, what happened then, we had an increase in numbers all across the departments, but mainly we had an increase in, in the numbers surrounding the prime minister. So we had the so-called presidentialization of the office of the prime minister. So the office of Tony Blair and every prime minister since 1997 
and looks a bit more like a traditional cabinet system or presidential staff system to a certain extent. Uh, after that, there is a fourth wave of institutionalization and expansion, and this was in 2010 uh, with the coalition government. So what happens then? We have a very strong legal uh, footing for special advisors. We have the Code of Conduct of 2010. We have the Constitutional Reform and Governance Act of 2010, the Civil Service Code. And all of this describes the work of uh, political advisors, special advisors, and all the prohibitions. There's also an attempt to create cabinets, you know, like they exist in France, with the extended ministerial offices. This didn't work. So in 2015, uh, this experiment with the EMOs was taken back and the system started to stabilize in its current form. So you asked me about the reasons, right? So I'm going to have to go back to the 60s now. <laughs> yeah, I'm quite interested what, you know, what, what caused that. Was there often these changes to things sometimes are caused by some crisis or some problem that's needed to be solved or both more evolutionary maybe, but you tell me. So there are five main reasons uh, with respect to the UK, and these are reasons that we also find uh, in other systems as well, when we study the emergence and institutionalization of these actors. The first reason is that in 1964, there was a change of government after a very long stay in opposition, 13 years in opposition, Last time Labour was in power was in 1951. The second issue was the need for political control and political responsiveness. And there was a big movement from many reformers at the time who wanted more control over the bureaucracy. And they wanted more control over the bureaucracy to push ahead with specific uh, social and economic reforms, planning, planning, there was a kind of technocratic vision at the time and left-wing parties and so on and so forth. So second reason was political control. The third reason, and these reasons are all configuration, they link to each other. The third reason was that there was a mistrust of the public service, of the civil service in the UK. Um, the civil service at the time was not loved, at least not as much as it was back in the 1940s. It was accused of technical incompetence, and some people like Thomas Pallet, an economist and advisor to Harold Wilson, was accusing the civil service even for conspiracy to enforce uh, its liberal economic policies upon ministers. Now, we also need to see the context of it, yeah? and that's the fourth reason. There was a crisis at the time. And what was the crisis in the UK? was the Suez crisis, which was a kind of uh, existential crisis for the country. And it was also the demise of the empire, which opened uh, the discussion for broad reforms in the UK, including administrative reform. And this crisis created a kind of a public mood against the civil service. And uh, this mood against the civil service started to become a bit nastier. There was a mood against amateurism, generalism, Oxbridgeism, let's call it, uh, like this. And all this culminated into a push for uh, reform. And the fifth reason, which is a kind of a reason of a smaller scale, I would say, but still existed. And if you read the statement of Prime Minister Wilson in 1975, you we'll see that the very important reason was the need to get assistance with government work. The government business started becoming more professional, more difficult, more complex, problems more wicked, and the ministers and heads of governments needed a lot of help, most of the help that they get, and not only on issues of policy, but also of political communication. We need to, to start thinking also that since the 60s, 70s, we start having immediatization of political life. So these are the five reasons, I think, why advisors emerged and got institutionalized. And these are the kinds of reasons that 
we find in other systems as well. Take, take the third one, the mistrust of the civil service. Um, you mentioned that it was, it was Labour that came in. When you hear about the civil service at the time, or in the, I'm thinking main, particularly in the popular culture, so watching the TV shows like Yes Minister, I think there's a, there was a general perception that the civil service at the time was sort of conservative with a small C, maybe. And I wondered if, if was that part of what you were getting at about the, the labor mistrust or was it that or, or perhaps something different? Yeah. So by the 1980s, uh, the people in the UK started to be a bit more distrustful of the civil service, whereas this didn't exist so much in the 60s and the 50s. Uh, in the 60s and the 50s, it was the elites. Uh, who started, like, for instance, the Fabian Society. At the Fabian Society, uh, they wrote some very famous papers. They wrote the paper in 1947. They loved the civil service, despite some criticism. They thought it was definitely one of the best in the world. Uh, uh, 20 years afterwards, they were heavily criticizing the civil service and they were considering the civil service as part of the problem that the UK was facing. The problem was the decay of the UK as a global power. There were other uh, individuals. So, for instance, I mentioned Thomas Ballot, who was an economic advisor to Harold Wilson, very influential. He wrote a very critical chapter, uh, which is, I advise everybody to read it. It's called The Apotheosis of the Dilettante where he heavily criticized uh, the civil service about its technical competence, its amateurism, its elitist background, and he also accused them for this conspiracy. Uh, and this all came against uh, the idea that the civil service had for itself and the way it was being run by a very famous head of the civil service at the time, Mr. Bridges. Bridges has, has written a very famous, has done a very famous speech in the 1950s, which again is, is a document that is worth studying, uh, where he sets all these elements of the identity of what the British civil service is. The fact that they are generalists, um, uh, the, the fact that they come from a background, the fact that they can jump from job to job every two, three years. Everything that we know of as the civil service has been discovered here. And what was happening at the time between the end of the Second World War, 1950s, and before Labour came back to power, uh, Britain was changing. And one of the main pillars of the British establishment, which was the civil service, was being challenged and it was being criticized as having played a role in the demise of Britain as a global power, basically. And I guess that's what links then to, to Suez being, then would Suez be the kind of symbol of, of that or the apotheosis of that moment? Suez is the catalyst, yeah. is, is, is the kind of, is, is the moment when everything changes, is the moment when uh, the UK understands that its foreign policy is not independent. It tries to organize an invasion, an intervention in Egypt, and it gets, of course, criticized from the Soviet Union and its allies, but also from the United States. The United States does not support uh, the intervention, and this is the downfall of Anthony Eden as well, who, in general, he was a very successful minister of foreign affairs and second to Winston Churchill, with a very important historical role in the UK, but he is uh, now remembered as a kind of uh, ineffective prime minister. So there's, there's a general feeling that the civil service is, has some culpability for the sort of um, written in decline. Mm -hmm. So what, in, in what way was the civil service seen as, as playing a part in that? Because I, I would have thought Lots of people would have said, well, that's, that's Anthony Eden. That's, you know, the, 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 the politics of it not working. How, how is the civil service made culpable or seen as culpable? Well, the thing is that the UK at the time, you need to think that it was uh, facing a very difficult reconstruction period after the war. Although the UK was, was not invaded and it was, it was never occupied, uh, it uh, nevertheless paid a very heavy burden 
uh, for its participation in World War II. It has had a very high debt, especially towards other countries and especially towards the United States. Uh, its economy post-war was not growing with the same pace as European economies. Uh, there was quite a lot of discontent. The elites were looking at other economies like the French one, having double growth rates and triple growth rates. Um, and they were asking, okay, what is it that is happening here? Uh, the European Economic Community experiment was successful. And the UK elites were seeing this and they knew it was successful, but they could not participate because they had missed the train. Um, and all these, all these issues, they were creating uh, questions about why is it that we are being left behind. And it is not necessarily that the civil service was at fault, but people were trying to find explanations. And the explanation started from the personality of the prime minister, the way the leadership style, the party in power, the way we had, in the UK, we had led to the politics at the time, uh, the way the economy was organized, the way the civil service was organized. Um, so there was, that was for the first time, uh, a highly critical movement, reformist movement, created and the civil service was a target also of this movement. And this is something that we see, this is a mechanism that unravels in many countries when they are in crisis. Whether the civil service is at fault or not at fault, this can be debated. Uh, this is something that we do see in many countries. For instance, in Greece, in 1981, a new party of the left came to power, the Panhellenic Socialist Movement. And uh, the Panhellenic Socialist Movement was the first such party to gain power in Greece almost ever. And uh, um, one of the first things that they did is they did administrative reform. They established big ministerial offices. Uh, they decided to do away with uh, general directors who were career civil servants, and they made them... and. Uh, they just made civil servants only directors. They created political appointee positions like general secretaries and special secretaries and so on and so forth. So they politicized the higher echelons of the civil service and of the executive triangle in order to be able to control it. Because they thought that the civil service at the time did not belong uh, politically to the new party. So the new party will, was going to be inhibited in doing this job. And we find the story in many systems and I have tried to push ahead with reforming the civil service and introducing political advisors. So we've got the waves uh, that you've outlined and we've got a bit of a, uh, a good sense now, I think, of what the reason behind special advisors coming into being and they're um, coming more institutionalized. What about before... Uh, Wilson in the 60s. Was there anything, clearly the name or, 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 or the kind of the yeah. more formal idea of a special advisor didn't, it doesn't sound like it existed. But was there anything before that? I, I assume yeah. there was still something where ministers had people who were more personally loyal to them, giving them political advice. Right. So as with any kind of academic discussion, the Zunch was the kind of argument. And I have just argued that uh, the introduction of special advisors in, in the UK in 1964 was a genuine, genuine innovation. Mm -hmm. But there are many who say it was not. I am saying it was. Uh, Andrew Blick wrote a very good book, and I suggest everybody to read it if you want to understand the history of spads in the UK, which is called People Who Live in the Dark. He was based on his PhD back in, uh, and he published the book back in 20, 2004. Uh, it's, the, it's about the history of special advisors in British politics. Uh, so I, I support his position. But there are many who say, listen, there have been many precursors and presidents in the past. Advisors have been around. Um, and yes, indeed, they have been around. Uh, I mean, what we need to understand is that um, 
advisors uh, have been around since we are able to read historical documents and historical uh, records. Uh, advisors have been around in kingly courts. They have advised, they have advised British rulers for ages. Uh, now, the reason why it is an innovation in 1964 is because between the 1850s and the 1960s, there is a near monopoly of advice and implementation of policy by the civil service. And this, was, this is not something that exi always existed like this. It was created by the North Scottish Trevelyan Act, uh, which started as a, a report in 1855, and then in 1870, under the premiership of Gladstone, uh, it became a law of the state, not a rule, a principle of the state. Uh, but even during that period, so in 1964, when spads are introduced and institutionalized in the system, is a kind of a shock because its challenges is very principle on which the civil service, the modern civil service in the UK, was built in the last 100 years, which was a kind of innovation in the 1850s. It was a kind of a progress to go from these hotspots of fragmented uh, English bureaucracy that they used to exist in the UK before the 1850s to this unified professionalized administrative structures to help the state. But having said this, even during this period of near monopoly of, of the civil service, uh, we have cases of outsiders provide their advice. And uh, I think there are a few big examples. So, for instance, uh, in the period between uh, the early 1900s and the end of the First World War, the Liberal Prime Minister David Lloyd George, uh, he used to have personal appointees. They used to be, like many the critics would say, that these are second-rate cronies. Uh, Roland was a famous one who, who, who basically promoted the national insurance system. Uh, Lloyd George, during the war, I had the secretariat, which used to be referred to as the Garden Suburb. Uh, and it was the Garden Suburb. Why? Because there used to be some sets in the back of the lawn of Downing Street, where they used to make the meetings. Um, and the Garden Suburb, uh, used to do what advisors do today. They used to spin doctor, they used to write speeches, they used to research policy and so on and so forth. But that was an ad hoc situation. And similarly, later, much later, Ramsay MacDonald, the Labour Prime Minister, uh, he created an economic advisory council, the EAC. And there you had the likes of Keynes, uh, trade union leader Ernest Bevin, Clement Attlee participating in that. Uh, then Winston Churchill had his own advisors. He had, uh, surrounding the prime minister's office in the 1940s, he had the economic section, which was about 10 to 12 people, mainly economists. Harold Wilton was a member of this economic section. Uh, and then he also had the statistical section, which was headed by physicist Lindemann and included others like Donald McDougall and so on and so forth. And beyond the sectors, he also had ad hoc outsiders who come in and help with the government, like Keynes, William Beveridge, who was a former civil servant, then went to academia and then came back to the civil service. And in 1942, he did his white paper on the welfare state. 1947, you have Clement Attlee. Uh, he again has economists. He makes um, a unit which is called the, the Central Economic Planning Staff, CEPS headed by industrialist Edwin, uh, Edwin Plowden. Uh, Winston Churchill, when he comes back, again, he creates a statistical section, although this time it's a smaller one. And then you have Harold Macmillan, uh, who uses personal counselors, and he also sets up a kind of uh, advisory group of economists. The name was National Economic Development Council. So very often, there were outsiders who were advising prime ministers in particular. These outsiders were usually very limited in numbers and very high profile. 
mainly economists or in the profession surrounding economics. But they lack one very basic feature, which is that they were not temporary civil servants of political party association. That was the big difference. And this is why uh, um, the Wilson experiment in the 1960s is actually a genuine innovation political administrative system in the UK, according to my opinion. I think that brings us on to one of the big questions around special advisors, which is around the contentious uh, debates sometimes around special advisors' position has often been seen in, in that way um, over the years. So why, why do you think is seen in that, uh, has, has been seen in that contentious way? This is a very interesting question. And um, in the first session of every seminar that I teach on political advisors around the world, uh, we have a kind of an exercise with the students where they need to search the internet and then they need to write down what is it, what is their opinion about, what is their opinion about advisors, but also what do they see as the opinion of the internet <laughs> advisors. <laughs> and uh, this is something I always do with the students and what they see is that they always find that the opinion of the internet is negative. Yeah. And most of them also come to class with a kind of a negatively predisposed yeah. stance to the issue. Now, why this exists? This exists, first of all, because of the role of the media. Um, the media tend to see advisors negatively. Uh, for instance, I had a very good student who did the research uh, on Australian and the UK media in 2018-2019. So he scrapped everything that has been published on advisors at the time, on broadsheet and uh, Tabloid, and he found that 50% of published media items mention advisors neg negative, and 40% neutral, and only about 10% positive. So you can see already with this sample that where the potential problem might be coming. And uh, as a matter of fact, there was a Labour MP, Tony Wright, who back in the day, he, he had mentioned that uh, spats are ranked alongside pedophiles. That was, that was his critique. God. He had gone up to that. Uh, so this is one issue. The second issue is that advisors have been used in, uh, in the political debate, in the, in the battle of the parties. Uh, and they have been used by, both by disgruntling internal opposition members. So for instance, Claire Short. She came up with the impression people who live in the dark uh, because she was not happy the, with the way Tony Blair was uh, running Labour, uh, both as, uh, as a president of the party and also later on as a, as a prime minister. Uh, but also criticism came from uh, the opposition, from, uh, the, from the Tories. So in his autobiography, John Major has a part where he discusses advisors and uh, he is very concerned about the rising numbers, the rising costs, and the fact that they compromise Whitehall partiality. And uh, during the Blair era, the New Labour era, uh, the Tories were quite vocal critics of the special advisor experiment as this was shaped by uh, Tony Blair and his team. Another, another, um, source of bad publicity is the various audits and checks that happen within the accountability framework of the UK. For instance, reports by the Committee on Strategy Public Life, Public Administration Committee, Parliament, so on and so forth. So there are many sources uh, that feed the waves of, uh, let's say, bad publicity. And um, there are also Many terms and many, many kinds of words that uh, we have seen in the public. Like I mentioned, people who live in the, in the dark. There have been people, well, journalists, former journalists have written books like Sultans of Spin and Control Freaks. 
some some people have called them Hitler Youth, a paragamer. Cummings has been referred to as a master of the dark art and so on as uh, Alastair Campbell. David Cameron called Cummings a career cycle. Joe Moore was called a sneaky spider. And so on and so forth. So you see that like the the words that are being used are not are not um, the best. Now the question is what are the actual criticisms and whether these criticisms uh, can stand the empirical test, can pass the empirical test. Um, and, um, well, this is something I deal with in my book. So in my book, I ask the question, okay, are these people masters of the dark art or are they beacons of light or are they guiding lights, as some of my students have said. And I'm trying to do this in, by asking certain very specific questions. So the first question is, okay, are they too many? The basic question. Well, surprisingly, in the UK, they're not too many. Uh, when you compare this with other countries, of course, they are an innovation and a change to what existed before the 1960s. But when you see what exists in Australia, Canada, in some Nordic countries, of course, I'm not going to mention the U.S. Yeah, it's actually, there are not too many prices. There is a presidentialization of the system at the center, at the PM, but not with respect to ministers. So second question, do they live in the dark? In my book, I have made the transparency to measure darkness or light in these offices. And I have found out that offices across 18 different countries, they can be classified in dark rooms where you cannot see anything inside, back rooms where you can see some things, strange rooms where visibility is quite and control rooms where everything is, is, is a big window shield and you can see everything. So the UK is a front room in general. Uh, it's a kind of a system that after many years of reform, you know who is working there, you know their names, you know what they get paid for, um, you know that they have to declare some of their interests. Um, uh, you know that they have to declare uh, when they talk to some senior media individuals and so on and so forth. There is this, so it is a system that, contrary to what we believe, it is quite transparent. It is not the most transparent. It's not the champion of transparency, but it's much better than another system. Now, who are these people? Much criticism comes from the fact that, um, as, as John Prescott have said, they're teeny boppers, very young, unwise, possibly incompetent, male, uh, from an elite background. Well, to a big extent, this is, this is true. Uh, they're not teeny boppers. I mean, usually they're in their 30s, but that is still young. Uh, they're definitely from Oxbridge by about 70% of their historic cohort, if this changes anything, of course. Um, and, uh, of course, they're highly educated. But one of the main issues is that they don't get much on-the-job training. So to be a special advisor is not the fact that you have studied PPE in Oxford doesn't mean that makes you a good special advisor. Um, but again... The fact that they don't get much job training is not a problem unique to the UK. It's a problem unique to all systems in the world. And again, I'm studying this in my book, and I see that there is a big lack of political management training in the ranks of advisors themselves, but also of the civil servants themselves. So it is one thing to be trained on the technicalities of the job that you do, and it's another thing to be able to be trained on managing the political process next to the policy process. Another criticism is that advisors exercise political control over the civil servants, even politicians that control freaks, and uh, that they push out uh, expertise, their spin doctors, and so on and so forth. Of course, these people exist, and these individuals exist, and the potentiality that this happens also exists. Uh, but if we look at the quality data, we are going to see that 
the, the people who work in political communication are a fraction of the body of advisors. Yeah, most advisors usually work in the policy process, they're policy workers, and most of them are actually invisible policy process workers. Uh, so when we're talking about sultans of Spain and control freaks, like for instance, for example, Alastair Campbell, I'm not, I'm not making a, a judgment, I'm just saying the historical examples here. Uh, we're just thinking about very particular individuals, the tip of the iceberg, and we'll forget the body of the iceberg. Um, just, just to come in on, on the point around transparency and then also the point around um, control around the civil service and then also some of the, the words around darkness and um, sultans of spin, there's, I think underlying some of that is that question around accountability and there's that, there's that criticism of enough, which you might be about to come, come on to accountability. Um, it would be good to hear some of the kind of counter arguments to that and just to know what your research is for research has touched on that issue of accountability. Yes. And this was one of the points that I was going to cover now, which is one of the criticism is, is that these actors are not elected and they are not accountable to anyone but the minister. So there is a big lack of accountability of any type of accountability. So although there is managerial accountability in the system, which means that they are controlled by their boss, the politician, this is the only kind of strong accountability that usually exists, which is the criticism. Uh, and because they are controlled from their boss, that usually means that they're never sanctioned for anything but that they do. To a very big extent, this is true. To a very big extent, accountability systems and frameworks surrounding advisors are usually characterized by soft laws and soft instruments. Right. But this doesn't mean uh, that this is a kind of a uniform uh, picture of what is happening throughout time over time and across systems. There have been many changes also in accountability systems. And accountability systems can also be um, categorized and courted in more stringent ones and weaker ones. And the UK, again, is not one of the most stringent systems, but it's not also one of the weakest systems. It's actually one of the systems that, by comparison, what's happening elsewhere is quite strict. And uh, it has developed quite a big battery of rules to constrain advisor behavior and conduct. And it is a system that beyond the kind of managerial accountability that you will find within the department and the minister, you also have uh, a strong parliamentary uh, scrutiny. You have a strong non-regulatory scrutiny that comes from the media. And occasionally, although this is not so much used, you can have also auditors that come into play. Um, some systems are even better than the UK. For instance, Canada has one of the best accountability systems in the world, which they forward in the aftermath of very big, shocking scandals. Just on auditors, what for the audience understands that? a bit more, is that setting up some kind of independent committee to look into, you know, the conduct of special advisors? Is, is that the kind of thing? Yeah, so usually very often you might have a committee. An auditor is an independent body that exists outside of the department. It exists outside of the parliament. And this body performs an independent audit on a specific problem of behavior of an allegation of misconduct in which advisors have been involved. Uh, this in the UK is not so, let's say, it, it is not something that you will see very often. It has a quite an inactive audit system. Uh, Australia has a more active one. There, Canada, uh, these are instances. For instance, there's the Australian National Audit Office with the Auditor General. And very often, if if you follow what is happening with advisors in Australia, you will see that many of the scandals in which they are involved, uh, they have been uh, scrutinized following media allegations by this ANAO office. 
along with the parliamentary committee very often and along with another government committee. So to summarize, yes, in general, we can make a general claim that accountability frameworks are still quite weak by comparison to what happens with civil servants and politicians, but they are in the making and there are many steps being taken for them to be improved. Of course, the problem we need to understand is that the, the office of heads of governments and prime minister and uh, ministers is their secret god, and they have a vested interest on not allowing too much transparency and not too many accountability checks in that secret garden. So there's always this clash. Mm. There's always this clash. Yeah, there is that tension, isn't there, between accountability and transparency, but then there's, uh, will be a desire in policy making practice to be able to think about issues, work through issues and, and, and do, be able to do that. Not, not always at every single meeting, you know, no needing, needing to be public. There's a question, you know, would that be, would that actually be, you know, best practice, you know, helpful? There's, there's a tension there, isn't there? <laughs> there's a very big debate. Yes. Okay. Yeah. There's a very big debate to whether the making everything public will actually civilize mm. uh, the democratic process or not. And there are many PhDs on this and research on this that show that maybe not. Mm. Maybe it is not going to happen. Maybe what is going to happen is once you open up the secret garden, maybe everybody, there's a, there's a, there's a very interesting PhD that I recently read, which mm-hmm. is called Dressed for Politics. So everybody will be dressed for politics mm. and public. They will start making statements that are more rounded up, less corners, but they're sincere because they will be looking at the audience outside mm. rather than solving the problem inside the setting, which is more conducive to having this kind of procedure. So there are two ways of seeing evidence. Yes. Yeah. And uh, from what I've seen also in my research is that with respect to disclosing minutes, documents that circulate in the office and all this, uh, there's not much movement here. In the majority of offices around the world, the secrecy or what's happening in the backstage is being maintained. You might have a transparency with respect to knowing who are these people, how much do they get paid, what are their private interests, conflict of interests, assets, all these things you might be able to know. In many, in, in many systems, increasingly, you get to learn more about this, but with respect to finding out what is actually being discussed, there are exempts and clauses from all kinds of freedom of information acts there. And uh, I don't think this is something that is going to, to change easy, if at all, in, in, at least in the near future. So the last question I had was on th- looking forward now. So where do you see... Um, looking ahead kind of the future of special advisors might go particularly in the in the uk context do you see their role or their influence uh shifting or changing at all or do you see more of a chance for stability or or, or something in between advisors are here to stay so i do not see a system whereby we're going to go back to the near monopoly of the civil service in providing advice Systems, policy advisory systems all over the world are becoming increasingly complex, increasingly horizontal, and with the participation of multiple actors, in a way they become more democratic. And in a way, all the actors who participate in giving advice, they need to compete for the year of the minister. Uh, in this way, in this respect, I, I see advisors staying as important actors in the system. Um, I see the system stabilizing. I don't see the system growing, at least for now. Uh, and stabilizing in a system whereby the prime minister has a big office, which a bit runs like a traditional cabinet that we see in Napoleonic systems, or a bit like a presidential staff that we see in the US. Uh, and ministers who uh, have two, three, four special advisors who help with uh, political communication, politics, and the policy process. And this balance, I see, it remains in the system. Uh, 
And one of the reasons why I think it will remain in the system is because prime ministers in the UK do not have an interest in increasing the political capacity of ministers and their ministerial offices. It is basically like giving a present uh, to their future competitors. Uh, so I don't see this uh, happening for now. But having said this, we need to keep in mind that there is a structural pressure for increasing political capacity inside the system and linking more to constituencies. Thank you for that. So was there anything um, else that you'd like to say or cover that we that we didn't have a chance to um, start before we sort of wrap things up? I would like to thank you for the invitation. It was a very interesting talk. I think we covered a lot of topics. Much food for thought for everyone who's interested. I will uh, provide also some resources if somebody wants to read more extensively about special advisors in UK. Uh, and uh, I would definitely suggest the book by Andrew Blake and also definitely the book by Ben Young and Robert Hazel on special advisors in the UK. That was this one was published in 2014, about 10 years after Andrew Blitz. And uh, I would say that these are two very good books for somebody who wants to have a good advanced introduction about what is going on. And of course, my book is hopefully coming out in seven, eight months. Let's see about that. Very exciting. Thanks so much. I, yeah, I want to just say as well, like I found this a very, very interesting conversation. And yeah, thanks so much for um, giving up the time on on a on a Sunday evening as well, um, no less to 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 have a have a chat about this.